Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hello, hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Homebase Hope. Today, we are talking all about raising our children in a digital world. We'll be diving into techno tantrums, safe screen time, and practical advice on how to manage things like social media. I'm super excited to be talking with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy is a child's technology and development expert, speaker, author, and mum. She takes the guesswork and guilt out of raising kids in the digital age and arms parents with facts, not fears, about the best ways to parent when it comes to technology. Welcome, Dr. Christie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Now, I'm super excited to have you on the show today because this is a topic that I love to explore and love to learn more about and it's constantly changing. Um, you know, our kids' lives are revolve a lot around screens these days and it's almost um, unavoidable and inescapable and it's it's really just the culture that we're living in. So... I would love to start by getting a little bit of background about your journey and how you became so interested and passionate about helping kids or helping parents navigate the digital world. Yeah, so I wish I had a really clearly planned out career trajectory, um, which I thought I did, but then it sort of detoured. Um, I had been a, um, a teacher, a primary school and an early childhood teacher who'd had an interest, um, a very mild interest, I'll be completely honest, um, in technology. Um, And I started to, I worked in a school where technology was being used and I could see how it was transforming kids' learning. And then I became an academic and my research was really looking at kids and technology. Um, But it wasn't until I experienced what I now call life's greatest equaliser and that is I became a parent for the first time and I had very naive expectations of parenthood. I'd had um, a kindergarten class one year where the ratio was 1 to 35 kids. So I thought a one-to-one ratio was going to be a walk in the park. Um, I had plans for cooking Pinterest-worthy meals and um, doing all sorts of um, leisure-based activities. Um, That's why I call it life's greatest equaliser. Anyway, my eldest son came along. Now, it's not how I date his age, but it's important for this story. He was born six months after the first iPad was released. And we'd been along for the six-month developmental check with the paediatrician, got the all clear, but I was the A-type first-time mum and worried that the paediatrician may have overlooked something. So I took my son back to our local healthcare clinic nurse just to repeat the six-month check. Now, I completely forgot my second son's six-month developmental check. I even forgot his 12-month check, but I did it twice with the first one. And um, I sat down with the local healthcare clinic nurse and she asked all the regular developmental questions, you know, was he babbling, was he having tummy time, Um, had he started solids, etc. And then she turned and asked me what screen time he was using. And I thought this was a very strange question for a health professional to be asking. And I said, well, well, nothing. And I thought she might know what I did for work being a researcher in this field. And I said, well, nothing. He's six months of age. And she leaned a little closer and she probed again. She said, no, 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 tell me what screen time is he having? And I said, well, nothing. And she proceeded to wag her finger and do the skippy sound. And she went on to tell me that my son would fall behind if he wasn't learning nursery rhymes, colours and shapes on the iPad at six months of age. And she also suggested that he should be watching Baby Einstein DVDs. So I was absolutely horrified. I was, you know, couldn't believe that this, you know, grossly incorrect information was being handed out. I actually thought it was one of those candid camera moments, you know, where 
people are watching how you react. Um, but it wasn't. Um, so I went home and um, my baby had one of those very non-traditional four-hour naps. Um, and in the space of that four hours, I did two things. Number one, I started a social media campaign because I was so outraged by what this health professional was telling me. Um, so I started a social media campaign that babies need laps, not apps, and it went by viral and then at the same time I thought I'm going to write a book about this so in this four hour nap I started I did not complete the whole book um, by any stretch but I started a book because I realized at that moment what conflicting and confusing advice parents were being given about screens on one hand we were told you know avoid them ban them don't use them they're you know they're harmful for your child and then on the other hand we have an allied health professional telling me that my six-month-old should be dumped in the digital stream um, so I became really quite passionate about um, providing parents with research-based information. There's a lot of um, myths and misinformation out there um, and I really believe I'm a, a huge self-confessed um, nerd and love the science and research. So I love acting as a bit of a conduit between the research and science but then translating that into what parents, are teachers and now also health professionals um, need to learn, know about navigating the digital world and even more recently working with businesses and corporations because all of us are affected by technology, um, not just our kids as we, we thought initially. Mm, absolutely. And you're so right. Um, you know, you can go to one health professional and you'll get the totally ban it, you know, that's not good. They need to be out in nature, nature play, nature play, nature play. And then you'll go to another one and, yes, I mean, technology at six months, that I haven't quite come across that. But, yeah, it does. It's a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? And for parents who don't have that knowledge and that background knowledge that you have, that's where it starts to become concerning. And I, I think for most parents, I often say in parents, you know, the reason that we're struggling as parents, I think there's two reasons. Number one is that this is the first time in history where a generation of kids know more about a topic than what their parents do. So the parent-child dynamic has shifted. The other thing is that as parents, we've got no frame of reference. Unlike every other issue or conundrum we face, we can't think back to how our parents dealt with the same issues because for most of us, we had predominantly analogue childhoods. You know, we spent our childhood staring at the sky, not at a screen. We spent time with people, not with pixels. So we've got no conceptual understanding about what childhood looks like in this digital space. And so a lot of us are making decisions on the fly. A lot of us are sort of looking around confused at what other parents are doing. Um, which I think can be problematic in and of itself. Um, so, yeah, that lack of, you know, a, a frame of reference is what's making it really hard for us as well. Mm. So what are some of the challenges that you're seeing parents face when it comes to technology? Look, um, parents really worry about some broad generic issues. The, the most common thing I'm asked is how much screen time um, is healthy. And whilst we do have government guidelines and there are recommendations, it's actually impossible to prescribe, you know, a healthy universal amount of screen time simply based on a child's chronological age. Um, apart from, you know, the, the amount of time, the next concern for many parents is, is, is perhaps concerning their child's safety. And again, depending on the age of the child, this can range from anything from, you know, um, cyberbullying, so cyber safety in terms of their peers being unkind to um, their, their children or teenagers. Uh, this can be a cyber safety in terms of online predators. And this is a concern that needs to, you know, be on parents' radar from a very young age now. Um, and then cyber safety concerns in terms of what kids can access online. Um, one of the biggest threats I actually believe at the moment, and I've, I've done a bit of, of work in this space lately, is, is pornography and the exposure to pornography at increasingly younger and younger ages. It's having um, 
we're doing some work trying to champion the government into recognising that this is actually a serious health crisis that we're facing in the country um, and, and not something we can ignore. So there are um, risks. Then there are um, also concerns about how technology shaping and changing childhood and adolescence. Again, you know, childhood and adolescence today looks very different to ours. So our natural tendency is to panic and think that it must be, you know, eroding their well-being. So there's some of the more generic concerns, I guess, that, that face most parents. Um, and then slowly I'm seeing an increase in parents starting to recognise how it's impacting their child's health and wellbeing. Um, but that's only in recent times, I think, again, because parents are realising how much time their kids are dedicating to screens and they're starting to see some of the adverse consequences of them having too much time plugged in. Mm. And you also talk a lot about techno tantrums. So, um, you know, and particularly for kids on the spectrum too, you know, taking away that, PlayStation or the iPad or whatever it is that they're connected to and, you know, switching it off so they can jump in the car and go to school so that, that transition period can really create those explosions of big emotions. Can you talk to us a bit about what a techno tantrum is and how parents can go about dissolving it? Sure. So um, basically it, it might, the term techno tantrum I used okay. a colloquial term to basically describe when our otherwise fairly well-adjusted child emotionally combusts when we try and digitally disconnect them. Um, and it, it happens for children, you know, who are and aren't on the spectrum. Um, and the, the thing I say to parents is that it is actually a typical neurobiological response, regardless of whether your child has additional needs as well. Um, and what we know is that technology causes physiological changes in the body. It causes neurobiological changes in the brain and the body as well and it preys on our basic psychological needs um, so it basically is this you know for want of a better word more like the, the tantrum we expected most typical children to outgrow by you know sort of three um, if we were lucky um, but it persists you know I've seen 18 year old children who were 18 year old adolescents throwing techno tantrums um, so it's basically this inability to, to switch off and some of the psychological and physical responses that um, occur as a result um, of that. Um, the other part of your question um, in terms of how do we dissolve it there's some practical strategies and again these are based on the neuroscience and research one of the things we know is that when kids are using technology, whether it's watching, you know, YouTube clips or it's playing Fortnite or it's engaging in social media, regardless of what they're doing, it's usually a pleasurable response. So their brain is releasing the neurotransmitter dopamine, which makes them feel really good. So the minute a parent or carer goes in and says, you know, turn off the whatever the device is, we're literally amputating this supply of dopamine. So two strategies that work really well regardless of the child's age um, or, or cognitive functioning is um, to cognitively prime them, basically warn them that their time is about to end so that if they need to save work, let their friends know they're going to exit a group chat, send the final message, post their picture, get to the next level, they've got opportunities to do that. It's also preparing them that they are going to end the activity that they like rather than just going in and abruptly trying to terminate the activity. The second active, uh, strategy I mentioned here to counteract that dopamine supply is to have an appealing transition activity. Um, you know, to say to your child, turn off your, you know, PlayStation and go and do your maths homework is not an appealing transition activity, nor is, you know, go and tidy your bedroom or set the dinner table. So something appealing. And the thing here I often recommend is that the kids, we encourage kids 
um, to engage in something physically active. So, you know, do you want to turn off the iPad and giving them a choice works really well as well. Do you want to jump on the trampoline or do you want to go for a walk with the dog? Um, but physical activity is really important. It also helps them to physically self-regulate. Their brain starts to produce some of the positive neurotransmitters. So we get hits of serotonin um, and some other dopamine hits as well. So physical activity. Um, there are other really pragmatic strategies. Um, in my parent seminars, I often talk to parents about physically touching your child, you know, just some warm strokes on the arm when they're, you know, frustrated and agitated that you've unplugged them from their favourite digital device it releases oxytocin in the brain and it's near impossible for them to stay in this agitated stress state when you're physically touching them. Um, so physical activity, um, priming them, um, giving them end points as well. One of the reasons we know we get the techno tantrum is because kids enter something called the state of insufficiency. We do as we're adults too. We never feel done. This is why we can't put social media down or why we go on holidays and just feel compelled to check our inboxes. We never get that sense of being done. And this is why multiplayer video games, social media has captivated our kids. So we need to be able to give them those endpoints. So instead, um, particularly for young kids um, or kids that haven't got a conceptual understanding of time, um, giving them quantities instead. So you can watch two episodes of the Octonauts. You can get to level seven on the game. You can have eight Fortnite battles. Just giving them quantifiable amounts as opposed to an amount of time um, can work well. Mm, fantastic. I love all those strategies. And with the timer, you know, in terms of autism interventions, a lot of parents and therapists will use like visual timers so they can set it and they can see how long they've got. Because like you said, they don't have any concept of time. So when you say, come on, we're going to finish in five minutes, that means absolutely nothing to them. So um, yeah, timers, choice, physical activity um, and providing like heavy work. So things where they're pushing and pulling and um, really giving the muscles and joints a workout. Yeah, I love that. Um, really good one and this may be me being biased. I'm a mum of two boys um, but I talk a lot about rough and tumble play and I believe boys and girls need it um, but rough and tumble play, you know, has huge benefits in terms of executive function skills but it also helps them anything basically to help them self-regulate um, and, and that sort of activity, boisterous activity can really work well. Mm and gets rid of some of those more frustrating emotions. Mm, absolutely, because you're working with the proprioceptive system and we know that can be really calming as well. So um, you were talking about touch. So even like a deep squeeze or a hug or something can be really calming to the nervous system so it can help with that transition. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before about the oh, – let, let's just actually, before we get into that, I want to ask – that's sort of how we can dissolve the meltdown. What if we wanted to avoid it in the first place? Um, well, I suppose a lot of those strategies do cover that, don't they? They, they do. I'm often asked, is there an act that prevents the technotantrum? And there's not. <laughs> audience worldwide that would pay a lot more than 99 cents for your technotantrum warning app. Um, what I often say to parents is to, to develop any sort of healthy technology habit we, kids need a couple of fundamental things. The first thing is they need firm boundaries. So firm boundaries around what, when, where, how and who they can use the technology with. Um, then they need the second thing, the second B is balance. They need to balance, and I talk a lot about balancing green time and screen time, online and offline, analogue and digital worlds. Um, and then they also need um, boredom. And I think if we give 
our kids, those three, or the, the fourth one I have is, is basic needs, making sure that screen time isn't encroaching on kids' basic needs, then there's no need for this panic and concern and angst that screen time's going to erode childhood and, and adolescence. But what happens is that screen time often interferes with those. You know, kids don't have firm boundaries around what they can access. Um, one of the key messages in my parents' seminars is that parents are the pilot of the digital plane and not the passenger. And in so many households, it's the three-year-old, it's the 13-year-old who's driving the digital plane and mum and dad are seated way back in economy class. Um, you know, having opportunities to be bored is critical and we're seeing this, you know, the adult clients that I, I work with, corporations are seeing this. You know, there's a real, we are tethered to our technology. Um, there's an absence for the, the, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that literally was never designed to be switched on all the time to turn off and, and daydream. So those fundamental skills, I think if we get those in place, then we're much more likely to have the techno tantrum. Um, the big thing with boundaries, though, is not just in establishing them, it's actually enforcing them and, and being consistent with those boundaries mm. and will reduce. I mean, nothing will prevent. I've seen adults throwing techno tantrums. So. <laughs> I know. Well, like you said, I mean, these days we can't go to a coffee shop and just be mindful and wait for our friend. We're constantly, we'll get on social media or do something just to fill in that time. So, um, you know, we've almost got to practice what we preach. We do, and it's, that's really, really vital. And it's one thing I say to parents. Um, as I said, a lot of my work lately has shifted more into adults' use of technology because I think for so long we were quick to point the finger and criticise kids' and teens' screen habits, but I think now we're realising how consumed we have become by our digital technologies. And we know, you know the way the brain is wired that kids, all kids, all of us, not just kids, that have mirror neurons. And so even if we're telling them to put devices down if all they see us is, is sorry is us role modeling then their natural tendency is to imitate what we do as well um, and I mean those mirror neurons are problematic with a whole range of other issues with technology this is one of the, the big reasons we're worried about pornography exposure and exposure to violence etc mm. um, so yeah, yeah. Mm. those boundaries in place absolutely now, you mentioned before about the guidelines around screen time and the current recommendations. Can you talk us through what the current recommendations are and your take on that? Okay, so we do have, look, each, each country has different recommendations. Um, in Australia, our guidelines were updated towards the end of 2017 um, by the um, Federal Department of Health. Um, and the guidelines specify for 0 to 2 year olds no screen time. And so when we're talking here screens, we're talking television, video games, iPads, tablet devices, gaming consoles. Um, so no screen time for 0 to 2 year olds. For 2 to 5 year olds, no more than one hour of entertainment media a day. And for 5 to 12, in fact, for 5 to 18 year olds, no more than two hours of, of leisure entertainment based activities per day. Now, I say to parents, a lot of parents don't even know those guidelines exist. When they hear they exist, they almost spit out their coffee or start to have connections, you know, feeling riddled with guilt. We know that about 85% of Australian kids aren't adhering to those guidelines. Um, I have a feeling 15% perhaps aren't being honest when they answer that question. Um, look, my, my, I say to parents, you know, use them as a ballpark figure, use them as a rough indication or to give you some guidance, but I don't think we can strictly these and hope that kids and families will adopt them um, because the reality tells us that most aren't. Um, the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital in 2017 
commissioned a survey where they surveyed 8,000 Australian families and they found that the average primary school, so 5 to 12-year-old, is spending um, 32 hours a week with screens and the average 12 to 17-year-old is spending 44 hours per week with screens and this is outside of school time. So we can see the recommendations are very incongruent with what's actually happening in homes. What I say to parents is I give parents a really simple formula. In my book, I came up with a almost like a simple checklist and say to parents, we've got to make sure that within a 24-hour period or even over the course of a week that our kids' seven fundamental basic needs are met. If they are, then we don't need to worry about screen time. And that looks at things like are they getting enough relationships, um, language, sleep, play, physical movement, executive function skills, which are you know impulse control and those sorts of skills, and good quality nutrition. And if those fundamental needs and developmental priorities are being met, we don't have to fret about screen time. Um, did I include sleep in there? I don't know if I repeated sleep. Um, but those seven kids, kids and adolescents, all of us, in fact, this applies to adults. If our, our basic needs are being met, then we don't need to fret about screen time. Um, but what's happening in many households is, is that screen time is the first need or in kids' eyes, it's a need, um, the, the first priority, and that then some of their basic developmental priorities are going by, by the by. And I know you mentioned before um, proprioception. This is one of the big things. Um, I'm hearing a lot of early childhood teachers and allied health professionals working with, you know, that younger demographic, preschoolers and lower primary, um, and saying we're seeing a decline in proprioception skills because kids are walking around in, in kindergarten literally touching desks because they don't know where their body is in space. Um, one of the big things I've, I've been working on um, lately is one of the reasons we're seeing a decline in kids' attention spans and adolescents and also adults, if I'm really honest, um, is that we've got underdeveloped vestibular systems. Kids don't have opportunities, again, not just because of technology, because play is being eroded in a lot of, you know, prior to school um, programs, um, but um, physical activity and, and that vestibular development is so critical to be able to pay, you know, have a good sense of balance so you can pay attention. So those fundamental movement skills are being displaced or eroded by technology and that's where it's problematic. Mm. And when you look at screen time, you're only engaging two senses out of the seven senses. So it's, you know, visually and auditory. Um, but, yeah, the vestibular, proprioceptive, all those other underlying really critical uh, sensory skills just aren't being developed. Yeah. And teachers mm. are seeing it firsthand, you know, even down to really pragmatic things like declining fine motor skills and... Um, language skills and again we've got to be careful not to blame you know attribute all of this to technology you know part of it is broader social changes changes you know in early childhood curriculum and expectations there um, you know the hurried child phenomenon where we're you know over scheduling kids so there's other contributing attributes but I don't think we can deny the fact that technology is certainly playing a pivotal role in shaping this and that's why I say you know, parents have to say, what's the long-term impact of the iPad? And I, I, in all honesty, I say to parents, I've got no idea. We are, in many regards, conducting a bit of a living experiment. You know, the iPad only turned eight earlier this year. We don't have longitudinal data. So I say, let's go back to what we know for certain. What does the neuroscience, what does the developmental science tell us that kids and adolescents need for optimal development? 
let's make sure those needs are met first. Sometimes we can meet those needs with technology, but more often than not, they're met without the technology. And then can we look at how we can introduce technology in other ways? Mm. And you mentioned sleep. So sleep is obviously one of those fundamental things that we need to be ensuring we're getting enough of and we're getting good quality sleep. And a whopping 70% of kids and adolescents with autism actually have sleep problems. So it's a massive issue and screen time can obviously exacerbate that. Um, You know, kids will have difficulty either just switching off at night, they might wake up frequently throughout the night or they wake up super early and they can't get back to sleep. Are you able to talk us through how digital devices can impact on sleep and why it's so important to sort of have some rules around screen time usage at night time? Yes. So we know um, that screens can really impact on both, as you suggested, the quality and quantity of sleep. When it comes to the quantity of sleep, there's obviously the displacement effect. If you're spending more time on screen, it encroaches on the available hours for sleep. But a less obvious way that's having a really profound impact, again, not only on on, um, kids and adolescents but also adults, is that we know that most screens, particularly if they're handheld, so tablets and smartphones, emit blue light and blue light suppresses the body's production of melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. Um, Again, handheld devices tend to be more interactive, meaning that they have an arousal effect on the brain too. It's very different to watching, you know, passively consuming television, for example. Um, So that's one of the really profound ways. Obviously, the blue light delays the onset of sleep. Now, this problem is amplified if you've got a prepubescent child at home um, because we know their circadian rhythms naturally change as they approach puberty. And again, if they're increasing their exposure to blue light, um, that is is further compounding that delayed um, circadian effect that does kick in in as puberty kicks in as well. The other reason um, we're really worried about screens impacting on sleep is that we know that if kids are using, sorry, have technology in their bedrooms while they sleep, it is disrupting the quality of their sleep. So if they receive um, alerts or notifications on their device, um, it will, instead of them getting five stages of completed sleep and then repeating that cycle four to six times, which they need, um, they will get an alert or notification. Um, it will interfere with their sleep cycles and they're not getting completed sleep cycles. So they might get the right volume of sleep if we're lucky. Many don't. Um, but even if they are getting the right volume, the, the, the quality, sorry, the quantity of the sleep, they're not necessarily getting the good quality. So one of the things I say to parents, you know, even if it's switched off and they're not getting alerts and notifications, just the presence of the device in the sleeping area can be a mental trigger. You know, they see the phone or the tablet and they think about, you know, what level did my friends get up to? I wonder if my friend replied to my Instagram message. For adults, we're thinking about, you know, has this person replied to my email? So it can be that mental trigger too. So definitely having a curfew. Now, ideally, the research says 90 minutes before kids go to sleep. Even 60 minutes, 30 minutes will make a really profound impact. So just like kids and most adolescents have a bedtime, have a a curfew for your Um, kids devices or cutoff time have a landing zone so nominate a specific area in the house where the 12 ipads eight laptops etc go so you can do the head count be very careful as a parent though that when you're doing the head count that they're actually charging the device and not just the empty case that many of them do Um, if they hand over particularly if they're an adolescent they hand over their phone without much fuss be very suspicious because chances are they've got a decoy device or a, a secondary 
device that they're using. Um, so establishing, again, firm boundaries around when they can have access um, will really pay dividends. But getting really good sleep hygiene set up is so important, um, particularly in the younger years. A lot of parents of adolescents say the horse has bolted. You know, I can't tame my kids tech habits. So I really encourage parents to set these boundaries early on and future you um, will really thank you for doing that. Mm. And you spoke about, um, you know, even if it's 30 minutes before bedtime, you know, at the moment for some parents, it might be right before bedtime. That's the only thing that is calming for them um, where there's a bit of peace in the household. You know, sometimes parents are just at their wits ends, you know, just trying to keep the peace. So if that's the one thing, that's what they'll use. My, my suggestion with that, though, is also to, um, if it is part of your evening routine, just make mindful choices around what. So perhaps listening to an audio book, listening to um, 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 a mindfulness app, um, listening to music is a much better choice um, than perhaps, you know, social media or playing a game or watching something, even, you know, rapid-fire, fast-paced cartoons. If they're going to watch something, um, we also know a screen swap is better. So watching on a TV is a much better choice than looking at something on a handheld device. Two reasons. TVs, depending on the model, don't tend to emit as much blue light. And secondly, we hope our kids aren't sitting as close to them so they won't absorb as much. Um, TVs also tend to be more passive at this point in time, passive activities. So trying to find something that will have that calming effect on your child um, is important at that time of the day particularly and also before school um the opposite can play true as well teachers are often excuse me tearing their hair out um because kids have come in literally wired to school and find it hard to pay attention Mm. and they have blue light blocking glasses these days don't they so kids who you know i see a lot of adults wearing them um i'm sure they have them in kids versions as well they do. I um I personally use and recommend a product called Baxter Blue. Um, Baxter Blue make glasses for kids, adults, and adolescents as well, and they are blue light blocking glasses, so they stop the eye um from absorbing the blue light that can delay the um, affects the pineal gland to stop the the melatonin from being produced. So they are definitely a good alternative. Um, my suggestion is not to buy them and just give your kids unlimited access. They still need those firm boundaries, but yet blue light blocking glasses can make a really big difference. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that could be something that they could use in that transition to slowly increasing that amount of time between screen time and bed. And it's just about increments. You know, if they're currently, you know, going from screen time straight to bed, maybe it's just two minutes the next night and then three minutes and then four minutes and gradually increasing till you get to that half an hour or 60 minutes and, yeah, just doing it really in small yeah. steps because you can't, you're not, there's no way if their no. child is going straight from screen time to bed and they listen to this podcast and they're like, oh, recommendations say 90 minutes that, you know, yeah. Small incremental steps, going cold turkey won't work. I mean, you as a parent will tear your hair out. Um, But what I often say to parents is rather than making drastic changes, crowd out the undesirable behaviour with something else. So rather than saying, well, we're not going to have any phones for 90 minutes before we go to sleep, just gradually introduce a new part of your evening routine so that that 90 minutes just, you know, over time reduces naturally because there's an outdoor activity displacing that. Mm, I love that. Okay, let's head over to social media because this is an area that's just continuing to grow. Um, What are your tips for introducing social media to kids and can you just give us a bit of background on, you know, your tips and what parents are finding with their kids? Um, Because my kids are young but 
you know, for parents who have kids, you know, at that 13, 14 year old age, that's or even younger, you know, they're starting to really want technology and the social media really young. So tell yeah. us all about it. <laughs> I'm going to say, um, you know, the research is telling us that about 79% of 10 to 12 year olds in Australia now have a social media account, whether their parents know about it or not. Um, I would validate this. I do lots of work in schools and t- teachers are telling me it is not uncommon for year three students to have social media profiles. Um, so it is an increasing problem. A um, couple of things I say to parents is if your child comes to you, if you're one of the lucky few whose child actually comes and asks for permission to set one of these accounts up, delay the introduction of social media as long as you can. Um, most social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Um, their legal age is 13 years of age. So say to parents, use that as your backing. You know, say it is against the law for you to have an account. It's a really hard moral standpoint to come back from. If you say to your child, look, we'll break the law for this, but for everything else, you know, we'll uphold legal boundaries. Um, So delay it as long as possible. And even 13, I think, you know, it's not the age when we know that all kids or most kids um, are emotionally able to cope with the demands of social media. It's based on... Uh, COPRA, which is a US legislation as to when it's legal to collect data about kids. 13 is the age. That's the only reason we have that 13-year recommendation. It's not based on, you know, social and emotional development. So I say to parents, most parents delay it as long as you can. Um, When you do decide to introduce it, make sure, just like you wouldn't throw your child in a swimming pool and expect them to know how to swim, don't dunk them in social media and expect that they'll know how to behave appropriately. Um, the part of the brain, their prefrontal cortex that manages their impulses um, and other important skills like working memory isn't developed until their 20s. So they are impulsive. So they will post stupid things, if I can be really direct. They will post inappropriate photos. They will write comments that they later regret because they don't have that impulse control centre of their brain um, fully developed. Um, we also know that this is a lot more likely to happen, and this is why we know, for example, social media, um, cyberbullying, sorry, is a lot more prevalent at night. That prefrontal cortex, that, that part of the brain, that, that limited part that's working for our kids and teens, switches off at night, and the amygdala, the, the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain kicks in. So this is why for most adults we tend to have more arguments with our spouse at night than any time of the day. Um, and next time your, your partner's picking a fight with you, you just need to see, you know, my prefrontal cortex is off, my amygdala is on. <laughs> it's a good reminder. This is why our kids are victims of most cyberbullying at night, why they post silly things at night. Um, when I run seminars for adolescents um, and parents of adolescents, I often say to them two things with social media. Number one, keep the rules really simple. Keep it clean. Keep it clothed. Um, and number two, and I say this with all respect, I, I married a um, an ex-footballer. Um, like footballers, nothing good happens after midnight. So do not be on the devices late at night. Um, but again, it, just like we wouldn't give kids, you know, entry into a pool without some level of training, we've got to help them. And as that pilot of the plane, we need to be teaching them how to use it respectfully. Um, and responsibly and that means we need to be vigilant it doesn't necessarily mean liking commenting and sharing your child's or teenager's posts um, but it means being vigilant but the big thing I say to parents now many parents particularly if they've got younger children who many parents naively think that Instagram is a safer platform than perhaps Facebook or Snapchat and it's not Um, one of the big risks I say to parents 
is that yes, you can be vigilant and you should as the pilot of the plane, you know, I call them random screen audits going through your kids' technology with them, not sneaking into their bedroom late at night and doing it. But doing it with them um, is important. But what you've got no control over now because of live streaming video is what your child or your adolescent has watched. A lot of this video is consumed and then it disappears. And so we are completely oblivious. Um, and I'm working with schools where you six um, girls on a sleepover watched a suicide attempt taking place on social media. Um, so, again, our kids are seeing all sorts of things that we're often completely unaware of because of, of that capacity as well. So delay it as long as you can. When you do give it to them, give it to them with those very firm boundaries and the guidance as to how to use it the right way. It's really scary, isn't it? And when you said about, you know, things that go live and you can't sort of get it back, it's gone, it's banished, you really don't know what kids are watching and what they have access to. Um, and particularly I think for kids on the spectrum, they are very vulnerable because they are trying to fit in. They want to be in and this can be, you know, because there's not that social awkwardness. They can post a photo, which may be inappropriate, but there's not that level of communication where they have to verbally talk and understand what someone else is thinking, but it's a whole other layer. Absolutely. And and any, any child with additional needs is particularly more vulnerable um, uh, because uh, that, and this is why we know in general cyberbullying is such a big issue because you don't get that immediate response. You know, if you said something nasty to someone or you physically hurt someone, there would be an immediate tangible evidence of what you've done. But when you are entering keystrokes on a keyboard or tapping on a smartphone, there's no immediacy, there's no direct correlation between what you're doing. Um, and it can often be done in a way that makes the perpetrator feel really good. So it's a vicious cycle in terms of that perpetuating. Um, but, yeah, really important, I think, um, that we we help. And another thing I say to parents is installing internet filtering software. You know, if you do have a child who's on the spectrum that does need additional guidance or restrictions, um, the one I use and personally recommend is the Family Zone. Um, and there's lots of other tools out there. Um, but the Family Zone allows you to set up restrictions, allows you to set up parental controls on every internet-enabled device, so smart TVs, gaming consoles, laptops, smartphones, so that you can restrict um, what apps your child can download. So when your you know, nine-year-old son is trying to download Instagram and you've prohibited it, um, it will disable that on his or, or prevent him from actually installing it. Um, so that is really important. And I say to parents, you must, I believe all parents must install internet filtering software. The only problem is that it doesn't mean your child won't see inappropriate content on somebody else's device or when they go to a friend's house for a play date um, when they're on the bus. So I, I say to parents, yes, install the software, but you've also got to be the pilot of the plane as well. Mm. And that's the thing. You can only do what's within your control. Um, they are going to be exposed to so many things outside in the big world, um, but it's just doing what you can and just empowering them with the tools and the knowledge and the education that, um, you know, around this topic I think is really powerful. That's right. So what are, let's head to some positive ways that we can use technology. What are some really good positive ways that kids can use digital devices? Well, I'm going to start with the one I was just saying was negative, and that is social media. If social media is used and we teach kids to use it respectfully and responsibly, it can be a great way for age, when it's used in age-appropriate ways, for kids to foster relationships. Um, 
you know, even simple things like video chat technologies can be great for kids, even younger kids with grandparents who live interstate or internationally or for separated families who or families that have to travel for work. Um, so there are definitely advantage, advantages. Um, and this is one of the main reasons we know that technology has become so popular is that it caters for our three most fundamental human needs. And our basic number one biological, psychological driver is the need for connection. And this is where we can have technologies that cater for that, that need. This is why multiplayer video games are so appealing because we are hardwired to connect with other people. Um, the other thing that technology offers, there are a wealth of educational apps and tools out there that allow, allow kids to learn in um, different ways, you know, really abstract maths and science concepts that were once hard for us to understand can now be made a lot more explicit through animations and games and more personalised approaches to learning. So there are absolutely incredible apps and technologies out there that will support kids. For kids on um, the spectrum, sometimes providing, you know, communication apps or providing um, compensatory apps, apps that will compensate for some of their developing skills. Um, these are great examples of how we can actually foster technology. So I'm, you know, a huge advocate and think that when technology is used the right way, um, my big message is that we have to tame technology and not be a slave to the screen. And I think we're at this point in time where we're just starting to recognise, you know, adults, kids, teens alike, that many of us are slaves to the screen and not using it in, as a functional tool for which it was designed. Mm, I love that. And, yeah, that's it. I mean, technology is wonderful. We wouldn't be able to have this conversation right now and be filming it if it wasn't for technology. So there's so many wonderful things that it can provide us. I think it's just being more conscious in how we're using it, I think, is the most important thing. Totally. All right, let's head over to the five rapid-fire questions and start to wrap things up. So number one is what is one habit that our listeners can implement today? This is one for us as adults, and I think it's good in terms of us role modelling, turning off alerts and notifications. Um, it makes such a profound impact to our well-being. It impacts our capacity to interact and be present with our kids. Um, you know, it's no accident that um, the unread icon on your inbox is red. Um, red triggers, you know, adrenaline. It triggers an emergency response. It's associated with danger or blood. Or um, So these design, and, and it's really important, technology has been designed to prey on our vulnerabilities. So I think turning that off will make a really profound impact impact for us um, and enable us to be a little bit more present and connected with our kids. Love it. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? I really wish people would ask, why is it that I can't stop scrolling? What is it about technology that captivates me? And, and it robs us. I say to people, if we are not in control, technology can rob us of our two most important resources, our time and our attention. And the reason it does it is because it has been just designed to prey on our psychological vulnerabilities and it's been designed to cause a physiological and neurobiological changes. So I think if we understood that, we'd be a little bit more kinder to ourselves and appreciate why we are tethered to tech. Fantastic. Number three, what book would you recommend all parents read? I found this really hard, so I'm cheating and I'm giving you two. Um, I have, a, a, as a mum, so I've got two children and a third literally days away. Um, it's probably why I sound like I'm panting at times in this interview, so I apologise. <laughs> um, 
Um, I am a mum and I have found two um, authors who I actually got to um, speak with earlier this year and they've had a profound impact on my mothering journey. Um, one of them is Maggie Dent. I'm a mum to boys, so entering boy territory was very peculiar um, <laughs> at times. Um, so I really like her work. And I also like um, a, a Canadian psychologist called Dr Vanessa Lapointe. Um, who is a, a, a mum but also a, um, a very well-respected psychologist who explains kids and, and the ways they behave um, in a much more tangible, easy-to-digest format as well. Fantastic. And was it any one of Maggie's books or a specific one? Uh, I've, I'm a bit biased again. Um, I've just finished her um, Mothering Our Boys and it has... Possibly, it's probably my favourite, but it could also be it's the most current. Um, and I think I highlighted, you know, every second couple of lines because it, it explains some of the very strange behaviour I sometimes see in my household and with two boys and a husband. Um, yeah, so probably mothering our boys, mothering our boys, mothering our sons. Awesome. Yeah. Alrighty, number four. What is your top unfinished bucket list item? So this one's hard to do at the moment because I don't have balance, period, at the moment. But I really, I had a go before I became pregnant learning to surf. Um, so I had a go a couple of years ago, gave it up because I had another baby. But that's a really important thing because um, it's something really bold that I want to be able to do um, and requires a lot of practice. Yeah, awesome. Oh, that's something on my list as well. So we'll have to go out together. <laughs> I'll be a sight. Um, number five, last one. And if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? I mentioned it before, but it's important to say it again. We have to tame our technology so we're not a slave to the screen. And I think if we can do that, our kids will emulate that. Um, I think we're at this really important juncture in time where we're really recognising that we have become obsessed, some people would say, with technology. Um, I think we're at this you know, important opportunity for us to ch change those behaviours. So being in control and not the other way around where the technology controls us um, is really critical because it's not going away. <laughs> Absolutely right. No, not at all. It's only continuing to grow. So how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Is it your website the best place to find you? Yes, so my digital um, website is www anymore is uh, drchristygoodwin.com and it's just dr at the beginning. Um, and I've got a wealth of resources um, there for parents to try and navigate um, the digital world without the guilt, the grief and the guesswork. Mm, fantastic. Do you have social media? I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> rather ironic if I I do um, is not just to justify to my husband why I am on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> um, but it is to provide. I know that's where parents are often gravitating. Um, so just to provide bite-sized digestible tips and tricks and bits of information to parents. So I have a Facebook page. It's Dr. Christy Goodwin. Um, and I'm also on Instagram um, as Dr. Christy as well. So um, I'd love to see you there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Christy. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of this episode resonated with you, but I really hope more than anything that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone that you know who would benefit from this podcast, I would love it if you shared it with them. 
Now, I love connecting with you all. So if you head over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. I am very active. All you have to do is search Home Base Hope. And I give a lot of my insights into my thoughts around autism, as well as my personal life and what's going on for me on Instagram stories. So come over and say hi. Now, if you do subscribe to this podcast by heading over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do like this show, please leave a five-star review so more people can discover us and so we can inspire positive change in more people living on the spectrum. So until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.